Crossway Church Sermon Audio. Grace and peace to you in the name of our Lord Jesus, or as we like to say in Philly, how you doing? You're not supposed to laugh, you're supposed to say how you doing back to me. How you doing? No, it's, I'm, I'm doing well. I, I thank God for this opportunity to be with you on this Lord's Day. There's nothing more beautiful and also nothing more powerful and countercultural than us coming together at such a time and reminding ourselves of the greatest reality in all the universe, Jesus is Lord. And so we come together while things are uncertain and crazy and out of sorts outside these walls. We come together, not because we have it all together, we come together to remind ourselves that there is one who holds it all together, and his name is Jesus. And so what a beautiful moment for us as the Church of Jesus Christ to gather together under the word, under the spirit, and experience his fresh grace to send us back out and represent Jesus and all the cracks and crevices of this world in which he sends us. Amen? On behalf of Trinity Fellowship Churches, it truly is an honor and a delight to be in partnership with you. Um, We are, believe it or not, we are entering into our third year of planting a denomination. Um, You've heard of church planting. We're we're denomination planting. And um, this is a very exciting endeavor that the Spirit of God has clearly led us and about a dozen churches into. And I want to encourage you, Crossway Church, that you have been and continue to play a critical role in building what God is calling us to build together as a family of interconnected churches committed to advancing the glorious gospel of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And so thank you for a number of things. I just want to just take a few moments to say why I'm thankful and why we as a denomination are thankful. First, we're thankful for this space Um, The Lord has used your house here um, to house significant moments, significant meetings in in the brief and early history of our denomination. We were just in this building this past November um, experiencing another general assembly as we continue to do the work of putting the pieces of this denomination together for the glory of God. And your space has been a, a, a wonderful place to experience the hospitality of the Lord as we've use this space to do the work God's called us to do. So thank you for sharing. Um, I've actually been, I get the privilege of entering into the sermon series this morning and preaching from 1 John, um, but I've been listening to these messages and I've been listening to your pastors commend you for the way that you love one another, the way you very practically and and tangibly care for one another and take responsibility for one another. And I want to let you know that you're not just doing that for one another, you're doing that for our denomination as you Let us come in and experience your hospitality. So thank you, Crossway Church. And thank you to your pastors who are playing significant roles in the building of this denomination. Um, Pete serves with me on the oversight committee. And Steve is serving heroically on the theology committee. And Doug on the polity committee. All the the contours that are necessary to put together a denomination are being done by a a number of elders. Um, And your elders, your pastors are among them. So thank you, brothers. Thank you, Crossway Church, for all the work. Work, uh, that you are doing. I would invite you now to take your Bible and go to 1 John. If I say any more beyond the sermon, I will have no time to preach the sermon. 
And what an honor it is to preach God's word to you this morning. 1 John chapter 4, verses 7 through 12. Let us hear the word of God. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. That is God's word. May he add his blessing to his reading and preaching by the empowering presence of the Holy Spirit. Amen? Amen. Kids ask a lot of questions. My kids, when they were young, they were an everlasting fountain of questions. Uh, We were convinced that when our kids were really young, that if question asking were an Olympic event, they would have swept the podium, gold, silver, and bronze. On any given day, we would be asked just a plethora of questions. Some questions were just very easy to answer. Questions like, Dad, do we have any Pop-Tarts? Is that a rhetorical question? I mean, our house has always been stocked with a good supply of Pop-Tarts. I may have had some this morning, brown sugar and cinnamon. Um, I mean, Pop-Tarts, modern day manna. Come at me, come on. Some questions, I honestly was amazed that they would ask at such a young age. Uh, When my 18-year-old son, Payson, was about six, I'm putting him to bed one night, and he says, Dad, if God is in control of everything, why did he let Adam and Eve sin? I said, why don't you ask Pete Privatera about that? (laughs) Some questions, just for fun, I I I would say, go ask your mother, like, Dad, where do babies come from? Go ask your mom. Uh, <laughs> right. But by far, the most common question our kids would ask is probably the most common question your kids asked when they were young. It's just one word. What is it? Why? Why? Tell me why. Uh, sometimes why can be a question of defiance. Like when you ask your teenager to do something and they don't want to do it and they ask Why? But most of the times, when a child asks the why question, it's because they have this young, innate sense of curiosity, and they just are trying to figure out why and how the world around them is working. As children of God, we we often ask the why question. Why, God? I, I know you said that. I know you command that. I know you expect that. But why? 
In other words, God, help me understand the reason. Help me understand the purpose. When we ask the why question respectfully, reverently, submissively, and humbly, God is honored. He's honored because we are trying to figure out more and more about his purposes and his ways. As we step into 1 John 4, 7 through 12, we're not considering a new subject in this letter. After a brief excursion on the relationship between truth and love and how to discern the spirit of truth from the spirit of error, the apostle returns to a subject he's been expounding since chapter 3, verse 11. And that subject, to quote verse three, chapter 3, verse 11, is this. We should love one another. But why? Why should we love one another? What's the reason? What's the purpose? Why should we love as Christ has loved? Well, John, like a good teacher, projects the questions his readers would ask before they even ask them. And so he answers that question. In chapter 4, verses 7 through 12, we get the answer to the why question. Why should we love one another in the generous and sacrificial ways that John describes and exhorts all throughout this text? Well, John's summary of the why question can be answered this way. Here's why. We have been loved to love. We have been loved to love. Why should we love one another? The answer is, we have been loved to love. That is the reason. That is the purpose. You have been loved by God the Father, through God the Son, and God the Spirit has exploded this love upon your heart so that you would love in his name. So let's consider this morning from the text that we have been loved to love. And we want to consider this by looking at the restatement of this reality in verse 7, the reasons for this reality in verses 7 and 8, the rubric for living out this reality in verses 9 through 11, and the result of living out this reality in verse 12. Now, alliterating that was the hardest work of sermon prep this week. First, the restatement. Look at verse 7. Beloved, let us love one another. You've heard that before, haven't you? I draw your attention to the fact that this is a restatement of this reality because John is, in fact, repeating himself. And he repeats himself quite frequently throughout this chapter. We are all familiar with the fact that a good teaching model is the art of repetition. When a good teacher will repeat himself over and over again to strike the point. If you didn't catch it the first time, get it the second, third, fourth, fifth, sixth time. Because this is of supreme importance. And so as we hear John repeat himself throughout the flow of chapter 3 and into chapter 4, we're supposed to come to this conclusion. If he keeps saying this, it must be really, really important. At the beginning... Of this discourse on Christian love, he writes in chapter 3, verse 11, For this is the message that you have heard from the beginning. 
that we should love one another. In other words, from the beginning. The beginning of what? In context? The beginning of time. The beginning of creation. From the beginning of creation, God has made it clear that his design and expectation for human beings, starting with Adam and Eve and their family, is that they care for one another. They love one another. They take responsibility for one another. That's why as he goes into his discussion on Cain, that Cain's being confronted. The way of Cain is being confronted because Cain, rather than caring for his brother, murders his brother. Cain, like his parents, were created in the image of God with a delegated responsibility to care for creation. To not only keep and guard and, 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 and till the earth, but to keep and guard and protect human life. And so why shouldn't we be like Cain? Because Cain didn't do that. He didn't take responsibility for his brother. When, when Cain was asked, when Cain asked rather, am I my brother's keeper? The answer is supposed to be yes. <laughs> yes, you are. You are your brother's keeper. And so from the beginning, in God's design for creation, we are to love one another take responsibility for one another, keep one another, help one another flourish according to the purposes of our creator God. But then he starts there and goes on and on and on and repeats himself throughout the passage. He says it again in verse 16. We're exhorted to love one another by laying down our lives according to the example of Christ. And then again in verse 17, we're exhorted to love one another by sharing our money and our possessions with our brothers and sisters in Christ as they have need. And then again in verse 18, we're exhorted to love one another, both in word and deed. And then again in verse 23, we are exhorted to love one another in obedience to the command of Christ. And now here again in chapter 4, verse 7. And then again in verse 11, beloved, let us love one another. As you can see, John restates this over and over and over again. Our creator designed us to love one another. Our Lord and Savior commands us to love one another. Our good shepherd gives us an example for loving one another. And now with apostolic authority, John adds his voice to this consistent witness of scripture. Beloved, let us love one another. From creation to the cross, the message is clear. We should love one another. We are our brother's keeper. Now, although he's repeating himself, you may have noticed in verses 7 and 11 that there's a particular nuance that John adds to this repetition. It's very intentional. Both times in verses 7 and 11, he says, beloved, let us love one another. Beloved, it's in the plural, therefore it means those who are loved. Those who are loved. The beloved in context of John's epistle are the ones who are loved by the Father in Christ. Those who know, experience, and have lavished upon them the deep, deep love of God in Christ Jesus. And so John says, beloved, as those who are deeply loved... Love one another. So here's John's nuance. Here is John's accent to this restated reality. And it's this. 
the good news that we are so loved by God should spill over into us loving one another. In other words, we are loved to love. His argument's even clearer in verse 11. If God so loved us, then we ought to love one another. This is what's called in the Greek language a third class condition. That means this. It would be better read, since we are so loved by God, then we should love one another. In other words, God's love for us is such a universal concrete principle that will always be the case. What flows from it is also an ultimate principle that should always be the case. Since God always loves us, we should always love one another. It's kind of like Chick-fil-A. If it's Sunday, you get no chicken, okay? Right? If it's Sunday, Chick-fil-A is closed. If God loves us, we love one another. In other words, to the degree God keeps on loving us is to the degree we are responsible for loving one another. That's the logic. That's the argument. And since God's love is everlasting, church, we are always responsible for one another. So you have been loved to love. And like John repeating it in this text, this is something we need to hear over and over and over again. Especially, church, in our self-centered, self-absorbed, me-first, individualistic culture. We need to hear over and over and over again, life is not simply about the well-being of me, myself, and I. I was not made just to take care of me. I was not made just to do my own thing. I was not just made to achieve my dreams and my visions and throw myself little me parties. No, I was made for what happens in my life according to the goodness and love of God to spill over into the lives of those around me because I am my brother and my sister's keeper. And look around this room. To the degree you continue to be loved by God is to the degree you continue to be responsible for those who are around you. You will never stop being loved by God, church. Therefore, you will never stop being responsible for the brothers and the sisters around you in Christ. We are loved to love that's the restatement. Second, notice the reasons. Verses 7 and 8. He said again, let us love one another. Okay, why? Verse 7, for love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. Here, here I believe John is given two reasons. One from creation and one from redemption. Here's why we love one another. First from creation. John argues that we have been loved to love because in verse 7, love is from God. And God himself, in verse 8, is love. In other words, the triune creator of the universe, in his nature, is love. Love. 
Love is who God is and love is what God does and his loving acts flow from his love and being. It's not all that he is. It's not all that he does, but this is a fundamental attribute of the triune God. The triune God is an ever-flowing outward expression of love. He is ever only loving. He doesn't just love sometimes and not at other times. God is eternal in his love. He is always been and always will be loving. God is infinite in his love. That means he never runs out of love. God is just in his love. He's always fair and righteous in his love. God is merciful in his love. In love, those who don't deserve to be loved are loved. God is gracious in his love. His love is to bless those who don't deserve it and haven't earned it. God is wise in his love. He knows exactly, he knows exactly when and where and how to express specific acts of love. God is love. And so we should love each other for this reason. God is love. And so what is John getting at here? I believe this, John is getting at this. If God is love, in his being, in his essence, if God is love, then we, we are made in the image of God. God is love. And we have been made in the image of God. Therefore, we are in this world. We have been created on purpose for a purpose. And part of that purpose is to display the image of God from our lives. And one of the attributes of God that we are responsible for displaying through our lives as those who are creating his image is God's love. You were made for this. You were created in God's image to display his love through your life because God is love. Maybe you're like me, illustrations help sometimes. One of the privileges of, of living in Philadelphia is that I never miss out on a good 4th of July fireworks display. I love fireworks displays. And I happen to live really, really close to half a mile from the Philadelphia Museum of Art. And every 4th of July, there is a spectacular fireworks display that is set off. And the whole Benjamin Franklin Parkway is just filled with people seeing the night sky lit up with all the colors of the rainbow. Red and green and yellow and orange and blue. And everyone's looking up like a bunch of mesmerized morons going, ooh, ah, oh, and you do it too. We are among the morons now. What does a fireworks display do? Let's get a little philosophical about this. It takes the colors of the rainbow and puts them on display in a very loud and noticeable way for the enjoyment of those who behold it. And in a very similar way, each one of us has been created in the image of God to be a fireworks display of God's glory. Katy Perry got one thing right. Baby, you're a firework. Oh, just scratch that. That flies in Philadelphia, maybe not in Lancaster. <laughs> no, parents, I am not encouraging your kids to listen to Katy Perry. I just happen to know that line from the song. You are created in the image of God to be a display of God's glory. And one of the dimensions of God's multifaceted glory is his love. 
And not that we're supposed to take God's attributes and, and categorize them in, 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 in priority or importance, but this characteristic of God's love is repeated over and over and over again as one of the most fundamental, most noticeable attributes about the triune God. In fact, the two greatest commandments summarized by our Lord, love God, love your neighbor. Why? Because God loves God. And God loves people. And so we've been created in the image of God to love God back and to love people in his name. You're made for this. Why love your neighbor? Why in particular love your brothers and sisters in Christ? Because you're created for this. So that's from creation. He gives another reason from redemption. He draws our attention in verse 8 to both regeneration and reconciliation. Whoever loves has been born of God. That's regeneration. Whoever loves knows God. This is the fruit of reconciliation. Being restored into relationship and fellowship with the triune God. And so think about this. In regeneration... We were dead in our sins, but now in Christ we've been made alive and spiritually birthed into the family of God. Now we are indeed brothers and sisters with God as our father and Jesus is our elder brother and the Holy Spirit is our crazy uncle. I don't know, but you, you, you get the point. We're a part of the family of God. And what's the mark of God's family? Love. So when we love one another, we are, we are living out the fruit of our regeneration that we've been birthed into the family of love. And then reconciliation. We who were once at enmity with God now have peace with God through the reconciling death of Jesus. And now with this relationship restored, we have fellowship with God. We have fellowship with the loving Father and the loving Son and the loving Spirit. And as we enter into regular communion with the, with the community of the Trinity, we experience God's love. And, and what do we know from Paul's teaching in 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians 3? And what do we know from the example of Moses in Exodus chapter 33? That when we spend time exposed to the glory of God, it rubs off on us. When we behold his glory, we are changed into his image from one degree of glory to another. And I think what's implied here that if you know God, if you fellowship with God, if you spend time encountering communion with God, then the love of the triune God transforms us into his loving image. So this is why. We are loved to love because we're made for this and we're saved for this. We're made in his image to display his love and we have been redeemed, regenerated, reconciled to display his love. So why should you love your brothers and sisters in Christ? It's for this reason, for this purpose. You've been made for this. You've been redeemed for this. So that begs the question. If we've been made for this and we've been redeemed for this, then what does it look like to love as we have been loved? I know Peter has done an exceptional job at unpacking the details of that from chapter 3, verse 11 forward up to this point. And we've, you've gotten into the practicals of what it looks like 
to take responsibility for one another. But here, as John is restating these points again, rather than giving particulars, he gives a standard. He answers the question, what's our standard for loving one another? What's the pattern we should follow for loving one another? What's it look like to be my brother and my sister's keeper? Well, notice thirdly, the rubric. Verse 9. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God implied the Father sent his only Son into the world so that we might live through him. And this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he has loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Conclusion, verse 11, Beloved, if God so loved us, implied like this, we also ought to love one another implied like this. So John says, here's what it looks like to love as you have been loved. Verse 9, in this the love of God was made manifest. Look at it, John says. In verse 10, in this is love, not that we loved God. Look at it. In other words, this is what it looks like. To love as we have been loved. So he wants us to look at it and see it as a standard, as a pattern, as a rubric for loving one another. In verse 9, it looks like the father sending his son into the world to rescue us from death to life. In verse 10, it looks like the son substituting himself in our place on the cross to meet our greatest need at great sacrificial cost to himself. Again, in verse 9, it looks like the father pouring out his generosity for our flourishing. And in verse 10, it looks like the son pouring out his blood to keep us from perishing. Now, there's so much to say about the the deep theological realities that are found here in verses 9 and 10, especially from a systematic theological point of view. I mean, we could spend hours, and if you gave Steve the opportunity, he would. He would spend hours unpacking the word propitiation and take a deep dive into the glories of penal substitutionary atonement and all that it means that Christ absorbed the wrath of God in our place as our substitute on the cross, taking our judgment in our place for our sins. This is a soteriological hotspot in the New Testament. And there is a time and a place for teaching and discussing, but this is not the sermon for that. In context, what's being highlighted here in particular is how the Father's initiative and generosity and the Son's willing sacrifice are the rubric, the standard, the pattern for what it looks like to love as we have been loved. John has a pattern, both in his Gospels and in his epistles, to state grand theological realities and then leave them there. And he does it here as well. But the main point of what he says here about the Father's initiative and generosity and what he says here about Christ's substitutionary, sacrificial, atoning death is in context to show us what it looks like for us to love one another.
So if we are going to love as we have been loved, we must take initiative and be generous like the Father. And like Jesus, we must be willing to sacrifice and spend ourselves for the sake of one another. So love looks like being generous. It initiates care. It doesn't wait to be asked. It doesn't hold back. It shares in abundance. It doesn't value accumulation as much as it values dissemination. It's more preoccupied with giving than getting. As a generous heart takes inventory on what one has, it regularly thinks about how could others benefit from what I have been so richly given. Like the loving heart of our Heavenly Father, love sees a need and then sends what is necessary to meet the need. In order to love as we have been loved, we must be generous and take initiative like our Father. Love also looks like being sacrificial. It gives when it's inconvenient. It shows up when it's costly. It doesn't expect anything in return. It invites discomfort and vulnerability because sometimes helping hurts. It's willing to give up time and money and possessions for the well-being of another in order to love like this. We must be willing to sacrifice at self-cost like Jesus. And so the rubric for loving as we have been loved is to not look at other loving examples of people, although we can benefit from that, but here in his love, not that we're really good at loving, but that God loves us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. So if you want to grow in both your desire and your capacity to love one another like we're being exhorted here, here is a very practical recommendation. Spend much time with your Heavenly Father. Spend much time in communion with your Savior. And the closer you are to the Father's heart, and the closer you camp out at the foot of the cross, the more you will be compelled, like the Apostle John, to love as you have been loved. And when we do, finally notice the result. Verse 12. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. John's point in conclusion is that when we love as we have been loved, taking our cues from the initiative and generosity of the Father, taking our cues from the willing sacrifice of Jesus, when we embrace a life of generosity and sacrifice for the family of God, the church of Jesus Christ, then the result will be that the invisible God is made visible. The unseen God is sensed and seen through our love. The word perfected here in verse 12 
is a very interesting word in the original language, and it's honestly difficult to translate in our English vernacular. It's a verb that comes from the root word telos, which means end or intent. And I believe what John is saying here is not that God's love is incomplete or imperfect without our loving one another, but rather when we love one another, as we have been loved, we are actually participating in the end for which God has loved us, that he would be seen and glorified and magnified and made much of as we love one another. Guess who is seen? Our Father in heaven. Guess who is seen? Our crucified, risen, and ascended Savior. As we love in his name, he is seen. He is sensed. He is known. He's made much of. And that is what we have been loved for, that we might bring glory to God. We have been loved to love that the invisible God of the universe would be seen and sensed through our love for one another. New Testament scholar Ray Van Nesty makes the following comment on this reality. John is arguing from a theological given to an ethical necessity. Since God cannot be seen, Christians can show him to a watching world only by loving one another. Thus, the way for God to be seen, recognized, for people to see that he is real, is for Christians actively and aggressively to care for one another. Isn't this what Jesus said? In the very chapter that John refers to in his gospel, chapter 13, after he gives the command to love one another, what does he say in John 13, 35? By this will all men know that you are my disciples if you have love one for another. Oh, I think the church in the West has, 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 has gotten over the simplicity, has, has gone beyond the simplicity of this very, very critical countercultural evangelism. As the unbelieving world gets a front row seat to the way we love and care and support for one another as an extension and overflow of the way that we've been loved and cared for by the Father through the Son and the power of the Holy Spirit. When the world sees the way we get each other's back, when the world sees how we're willing to love one another in word and in deed, they say, why would you do that for people you hardly even know? And Jesus said, when people see that kind of love, when people see that kind of care, Here's what they also see. They see Jesus. By this will all people know that you are my disciples if you have love one for another. Here's the result. This is mind-blowing. Everything the church is supposed to do until Jesus returned is kind of wrapped up in this one command to love one another as the church. How can I say that? When we love one another, here's what John's saying. When we love one another, the result will be that we will be participating in the beautiful convergence of the church being edified, the world being evangelized, and God being magnified. Is that not what we're here for? To build one another up in love? To proclaim the good news to the nations? And to bring glory 
to God on earth as it is in heaven. Church, as you love one another, you are participating in the end for which we are on this earth to care for God's people, to reach the lost, and to bring glory to the triune God. This is why we love one another. This is the reason. This is the purpose. We have been loved to love. So beloved, love one another. For more information, head to our website at crosswaypa.org.